So uh, to, our, to our final um, guest of the evening, our final and most dangerous guest of the evening, <laughs> is that a dirty martini? Gin or vodka? The DBC stands for Dirty But Clean, and as I said earlier, I've yet to see the clean, and I really doubt that you will either. He's still the only writer to win the Booker and the Whitbread for the same book. He moves around a lot, um, not always because of the police. Um, and he's just moved to England, and tonight he reads a new story for you guys, which you are incredibly lucky. He reads a new story for you for the very first time. It has something to do with Mexico and drugs, and therefore, obviously, it's fiction. Please welcome DBC Pierre. Thank you very much. It's very auspicious uh, to be in front of uh, SJ and Liz Hoggard. Uh, you have the writer of the King's Speech, for fuck's sake. You, sh you, should, you should applaud that uh, if you enjoyed it extremely as I did. Um, so listen, this, wa this is a slightly uh, dirty but clean moment. Um, I'm going to give you a, a little preamble into this reading, uh, partly because it needs one, and you may not know all the background to the story, um, and secondly because I smoked a spliff uh, when I read it back to myself, and it took me about 40 minutes. <laughs> and now I understand it's sort of two minutes long. <laughs> just the kind, of, the kind of shit that happened, so <laughs> let me... Here's what happened in the last episode <laughs> of, of All Our Lives is this, that um, go back to the 1980s um, and you'll see that uh, Colombia was the center of a cocaine trade which began to, to be incredibly lucrative. And there was, just to give you some really beautiful figures from back then, towards the end of the 80s. Um, Florida was the main entry point for all of that, and it was completely unpatrolled coastline and airspace at the time. And there was in one year, just between 1989 and 1990, there were more than 130 crashes by drug-carrying aircraft in the state of Florida which were caused by chance mechanical failure. <laughs> so if you calculate the reliability of aircraft and the percentage of them which will crash by accident completely out of the sky, then you can see that the, the thing was just an absolute uh, superhighway for drugs. Um, and what came to happen at that time, Pablo Escobar was uh, setting himself up and setting his private zoo up, and there's still a problem today in Colombia with uh, escapees from his zoo, because he had hippos, and there is still now a breeding uh, problematic group of hippos in the rivers in Colombia. <laughs> from his private zoo, it's true, they've made a film about them, because the fucking he started out with four of them, and now, that, and now it's like a plague of hippopotamus. <laughs> and absolutely. Um, he, at the time, towards the late 80s was um, was running an economy, a personal economy of about 30 million dollars a month and his biggest problem as was the biggest problem of all drug lords 
wasn't drugs at all, but transporting cash, banknotes. And he had a fleet of aircraft and uh, an enormous administrative setup just to handle the cash banknotes that came from the business. And half of his problem then was being caught with cash and not with drugs. So all of this was going on. Miami was more or less built and modernized as we know it today on the back of that industry. Um, and being a canny place, they kind of waited for that to happen before they <coughs> stamped on it. But they did stamp on it, and it was George Bush Sr., the good Bush, <laughs> who decided that, um, that this had to stop. And so he started putting up AWACS radar planes, and he started controlling the air traffic and the coastal traffic into Florida um, and closed off that avenue. And over time, as the cartels tried new ways to get into the country, the very obvious thing became the Mexican border. And of course, there's a clear route over land all the way from South America into the United States. Um, the Mexican side of the border is notoriously corrupt. The American side is extremely corrupt, but uh, doesn't publicize it so much. And so this became the new black for the movement of drugs, um, which leads me to this tale. And just because it might generally be two minutes, this is one of the... <laughs> let me tell you about... I'll tell you a little bit about writers. There's never just one idea that that we hit on and go for. Of course, you've always got 30 things in your mind which, which could be great works. And, and really, you spend a lot of time arbitraging and figuring out the ones that have the, have the depth to turn into a novel or something. Um, so this isn't even, I hope it's good for you as well, this isn't even um, the next novel. So this, this is a work without a publisher which is in progress and which I've chosen a fragment from uh, just for tonight and to, to honor Damien. And it also comes with, remind me, comes with the smallest gift for you that you've probably ever received. Definitely. It's in my pocket. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's still in my pocket. <laughs> it's okay to, we're okay saying that here, no? civilized people <laughs> so the point is this drug industry Mexican border the richest town in Mexico the one with the, the richest neighborhood in the whole country is actually Monterrey which is a northern city um, headed for four million people desert city industrial has the wealthiest neighborhoods traditionally, back when Mexico was, was uh, um, normal, untouched by so many drugs. Now, the cartels have been obviously going for a decade and more in Mexico. And what's happened is that in arming themselves for their drug trade, a fuckload of weapons have made their way into the country. And those weapons have been in the hands of the the periphery, the edges of the cartels, 
and those edges have broken into just generalized crime gangs because they have firepower. So Mexico's, when you hear the statistic that in the last six years, 50,000 innocent people have died, um, that's not because they're involved in drug trade or et cetera. That's simply because gangs have grown up around the availability of weapons. And in Monterrey, what's happening in the last uh, few years is that one of those, the biggest of those breakaway crime gangs called the Zetas, is moving street by street and just controlling the city. So they're, they're extorting and assassinating and kidnapping and all of these very lucrative new uh, industries for the 21st century. Which led me to think, what of the story? We always see these, these people as statistics on TV and we see them as dead bodies and we never imagine that we're among them that there could be endless creative people and uh, different people in among the statistics. And so I wanted to, in this work, um, speculate from the point of view of somebody on the street there, just watching this uh, approach. I just came to, and the air smells of vanilla, another sign that the world is going to end. It's almost time to go. Buses pass, and bigger trailers in the distance snarl into town, farting between gears into the seabed of a desert city guarded by Everests without ice, teeming with Quatimundis and executioners. Monterrey, Monterrey, Nuevo León. Just thinking of you turns my liver black. This is my pestilent life. This is my Monterey. And I'm fat and ugly and tiny, the size of a Western child, although I live in the West, geographically speaking. But I'm small even for here, and fat and pestilent. Still, when I die, I'll go up on a bird feather, one of those giant hairy white ones, and I'll have a white dress. I won't wait at the bus stop. I don't know if you've heard of the Zetas. Among other things, they're like the mafias that offer you protection. And day before yesterday, Oscar came to tell me that they'd reached here. They've been spreading this way, street by street. They're asking for 3,000 pesos a month, a shitload for a cyber cafe like mine. The Zetas, who also assassinate, extort, and kidnap. Well, it was only four blocks away on Zumpango where they left those nine men with amputated heads and their hands stuffed into the holes of their necks so that they looked like trophies with handles. That's the setas. But the first thing I thought when Oscar came, apart from fear, which isn't a thought, is that the new Frosties commercial came out a few weeks ago <laughs> telling kids to become Zeta Sevens like eat Frosties and its seven healthy ingredients and do exercise. Ha, kiddies, eat Frosties and become a Zeta. I almost fell over. Then yesterday, I saw it again and they changed it to Zuka Sevens, which is still aggressive, Zuka Bazooka. 
It all happened, this and the Frosties commercial, just as those inhabitants of asses of rats in reggaeton drains reached my street. All the signs have been pointing to this. First, that girl came into the cyber with the tattoo, which she said was a peace sign, but it was the Mercedes-Benz logo <laughs> because they'd left a bar out. She couldn't be convinced. Then my friend the warlock gave me a talisman coin because he knew I had troubles, and I tossed it one day to make a wish, and it stuck in the air conditioner. I couldn't get it out, and after a while the friend calls me and says, Daniela, I can't feel your energy. It's turning colder. <laughs> I immediately... <laughs> I immediately ordered pizza to calm down. <laughs> and even ordered a muffin, triple chocolate. And when the order arrived, the muffin had a bite taken out of it. I phoned to complain. And they said, well, we don't bite them here. <laughs> and I said, well, it looks like you try the food before it leaves the shop. And they said, we'll send a new brownie. And when the rider arrived with the brownie, he started to inspect the bite mark on the old one. And I pointed out the tooth marks. And he tried to tell me that chunks sometimes just come away. <laughs> we were like forensic detectives on TV with the fucking brownie. Then yesterday, I saw this total tramp lying in the gutter. And I watched him to see if he was still alive when suddenly his clothes started chirping and it was his mobile. He woke up and started to chat like a businessman. I always babble when I'm nervous. The third to last minute passes and I don't know where to look. I want a point to fix my gaze on where nobody will observe or even pause. A fixed point in the universe which is mine alone, if only for a moment. But I don't find it. Just as the men return, pointing their guns, a train cries behind me. I haven't told you, but there are railway lines just behind us, too close for my liking. At first I couldn't sleep, what with the way the wagons break and crash into each other, and the forced roar of the engines when they set off. Trains, they always sound like pain, though at least they can go back where they began. Thank you very much. How I long for my tiny gift. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the, 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 the name of the central character there was Dan Danielle? Daniela, yeah, it's actually a, a young girl's part. So, my voice is uh, an octave away from authenticity. <laughs> or some hormones, just a few, <laughs> just a... I'm working on that, believe me. So Daniela is the central character of this piece that you're writing, which none of us have ever heard before, and that's the first time that, that, that I've read or heard you writing in, in that voice. Yeah, no, it's the first time I've heard it. Uh, 
Honestly, this is in the background. That's a, a young girl with a an internet cafe in w yeah, what would be a middle class of Monterrey. Um, and of course, all the information about the city's situation kind of travels through there because illiterate people come to have their letters transcribed and uh, to send scanned copies of mail and et cetera. So the I just wanted to look at that equation from, a, from one remove and um, see how the how real people are affected. So y you once said, because um, you grew up partly in Mexico, you grew up all over the place, but you grew up partly in Mexico, and you said, in the neighborhood where I grew up, I was only ever once sniped with a gun. Only one Bengal tiger ever threatened me there, and of all the earthquakes, only one was ever strong enough to throw me out of bed. One raccoon who lived there was my pet, and despite our house being immense, still only one child was ever discovered, hidden in an upstairs room for over a decade. So talk to us about your childhood in Mexico. <laughs> Tell of an intro. Well, that this is the beautiful thing about literature. I mean, all these things are, are absolutely true. Uh, but if you condense them, this is across the 16, 17, 18 years that I spent in Mexico. Um, and we lived in an extremely privileged, I now realize probably too privileged for my father's position, which makes me wonder if he was a spy or uh, something else. But uh, we did, we had tigers next door, tigers and peacocks. And um, Are you sure it wasn't Las Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like Las Vegas. Yeah, the Las Vegas of Mexico City. But there is a lot of that there. I mean, it's a place where where wealth is polarized always. Um, and because of the, the, me the mechanism of poverty and corruption, which we're now seeing in the world at large, is that generally speaking, wealth will, will uh, capillary itself to a top one or two percent. Um, and in, in these days, we're talking about 80s and stuff, that was a more rare equation. Now we're seeing it even in Britain. But, you know, where you had billionaires or you had absolute peasants. And so you, you were living in a very privileged lifestyle at that point, but you could see around you people who, who really weren't. What was your relationship to that point? Did you stay in the bubble or were you a bit of a tourist in the kind of, in the kind of underside? No, very much I was into the underside. Very, very, very much. And I used to, I used to help our maids steal from my parents. Um, what did they steal? Well, they, the thing is, is the type of stuff we would do in a company if we're working in England. Um, it wasn't so much uh, theft of, of object in the house, so much as um, adding your own shopping to the household shopping list and adding your own fuel and, uh, you know? Adding your own drugs. Exactly, loading the thing up. Uh, the service didn't do drugs. There was a divide. That's one divide that happens uh, with, uh, only with wealth and privilege. Um, that the poor don't tend to don't tend to do drugs at all. So that's interesting because they're th they're almost relegated to a service class. So the people who are the people th there's is it the middle class that's selling drugs? It, I mean, in the in the, the Zetas, it's like these people are entrepreneurial. They're almost they're kind of you know eighties barra boys. It's like the way to get on is is to occupy, is to sell, is to create a market for your product. Who are the people who are doing that? Yeah, that's just. The there's a certain detritus. The middle class is a little bit like India, 
where there is a growing middle class, or there was a growing middle class across the last 25 years, and it's now receding again. Um, and on the, on the edges of that, I mean, you don't need an education to do this. What you need is the ability to face horror every day. You need the ability to, to take someone's eyes out and eat them and kill them and go to their house and kill their family and their children. Uh, so it's a special kind of, it's not, even, it's not even a class system, but a psychological class, a disorder. Like, like an NVQ in generalized terrorism. <laughs> that's, that's where we're moving towards. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned the, the border crossing between, between the United States and Mexico, which is Texas. Um, and, and Mexico, and I, I lived in Texas, and I remember going to the border towns and just being horrified by, by, by you know, you know, by, by what I saw. And in Vernon, God little, Vernon crosses north to south. He does south to north as well, but he does north to south most kind of creatively. Tell us about your crossings. It's a beautiful thing. I love borders, and I still, still have lived uh, near the border in Ireland as well, almost by by uh, instinct. So the Mexican border has always been uh, very interesting because you've got the most powerful country in the world and the, and the most uh, profligate consumer society in the world. And on the other side, of actually technically a very poor country, although it's, it has wealth and, and it's very productive. Um, so the fact that there's a sealed border there is really, really interesting. And I kind of grew up, as a kiddie, I grew up yearning after juicy fruit gum and all the stuff that you get over the other side. Um, and it was natural for me, as soon as I could, to, to go and cross that border, just because I could speak English and pull it off. Um, and I got fucked. It's actually the reason why I'm not in Mexico today, probably because, obviously, I had a, a full residency there and I had full work permit which isn't so easy to get in Mexico. But um, I started falling in love with cars and machinery when I was 16, 17, and it didn't take long. This is pre-NAFTA, so before you could buy all the, all the cars in the world in Mexico itself. They only had a few basic models of Volkswagens. And um, it wasn't long before I fancied something from the other side and tried to drive it across, and I got shafted, and they took my r uh, residency away. So my last journey as a, uh, a Mexican resident was when I was 19 and decided that I needed a 6.6-liter Trans Am, like a dickhead, like Burt Reynolds. Um, and I brought it to the border at Reynosa, in the middle of the night, um, because someone told me the middle of the night's much easier, the, the guys are sleeping, <laughs> and <laughs> which wasn't totally wrong, you know? And I got so far as there, um, did was ready to pay them and everything, um, and I did pay them, they, they kept me waiting, because the price on these transactions goes up if they make you feel that you're gonna be imprisoned. So we waited till it got to about 50 bucks, at four o'clock in the morning, and finally they let me through. Um, and then I discovered 26 kilometers into the country, there's a second border, where obviously the first guys have phoned these guys and said, well, he's good for 50 bucks at least. And at the second border, um, he took his money and let me through. 
but at the same time phoned ahead to uh, Mexico City and had my status canceled. And so I was suddenly a tourist. By the time I reached Mexico City, 18 hours later, I was a tourist and had no right to be there anymore. And that, that was the beginning of my roaming. Yeah, I mean, you, you have you have roamed. I would love to see your passport because it's just uh, so many countries that you've been to and spent time in, and your accent is testament to that because it's all over the shop. You know, you've been <laughs> you've been you've been everywhere, and it's I think it's very hard to work out. I wonder how hard it is for you to work out. Is there any way or any place that you think of as home? Well, I think of here as home. It's very weird because my mum's from the north of England, um, and grew up in quite quite a regular lifestyle and so I used to I used to leave in the summer from Mexico City um, uh, a kind of a palatial house with servants and stuff and we would fly to here and we would take a bed sit in Chesterley Street in Durham yeah or thereabouts or something we would just take something utterly ordinary and it's because something in her heart was uh, pulling her there and that was that was the summer and so that um, there's something about uh, human warmth which both places have but which always exists it seems to exist more and I know this very populist fucking daily mail idea but it's true um, that you're your strugglers your regular people in life where the most value, where the most reward exists, um, in a way. And so I've always had one foot in both camps, and that's possibly why I'm always writing between the camps. Because there is a lot of tension. I mean, if we think about, if you think about Vernon, he wants, to, he wants to get to Mexico, he wants to be in Texas and, and be successful. And I, w I do want to talk about Texas for a little while, because it's a completely fascinating state. I mean, I... When, when I left there, I was shocked to discover you could drive for eight hours and still be in fucking Texas. Um, and and it, it's so big that there are, there are communities which are isolated. Like there's, um, there's a German-speaking community. There's a French community. There's a place called the, the Ghost Pines, which is the southernmost outpost of pine trees in, in the south. And it's all kind of in this, in this one you know, great state of Texas. And, and it used to be part of Mexico. And I think it's really interesting that you, that you chose that you know that you chose that I, I hate using the word liminal because it's so fucking undergraduate but I, I, w I, I will that you know that it's a space that's at the end of empire and the beginning of another and these are themes that you continue to explore yeah and do you know what's interesting as well by sheer coincidence that's where we are as a culture and as a world we're living on the borderline of all these things we're suddenly having to deal with the really practical nitty-gritty of uh, of you know where things begin and where they end, and who is rich and who is poor, um, and who is poor is now mostly us. No, I love Texas. When I was growing up there, it is a weird state, and it does have in the middle Austin. Like if you get, you know, if you get into trouble in the really hardcore, there's there must be fifty counties. I don't know what number of counties there are, but a lot of little counties in Texas, um, and each of them have their own rules. A lot of them are dry counties, so you can't have alcohol, or you can maybe get beers. Um, the stuff Vernon was based on was mostly uh, Smith County, which I knew very well, which today, you can look it up on the internet, 
put in uh, Smith County just now on your iPhone, and you'll see that they have um, armored personnel carriers. It's a little county of, you know, of an insignificant number of people, um, but Sheriff Smith has been the sheriff for over 30 years and just keeps being re-elected. And of course, another Smith is the mayor and another Smith is the you know, town planner. And These are the gurus in your novel. Exactly, these are exactly the gurus. It's just a, a closed uh, community. And because it's in the richest country, you know, it's an interesting thing, if you ever go to uh, Texas and Mexico, to drive from the States into Mexico, and once you get through the border towns, see how much more civilized it is than Texas, actually. Suddenly, you can, once the little border towns are kind of festering, they have a, a bacterial feel around them, and, and things are very different. But if you get as far as Monterrey, which is less than 100 miles further south, suddenly, um, there are marble floors, and there are cappuccinos, and there are actually v and good service and fantastic restaurants. And suddenly, the world shifts, and Mexico is, in a certain way, much more civilized than uh, the southern states of the USA. I think that question of what constitutes civilization is very interesting, and in Lights Out in Wonderland, you're you're inv investigating the idea of of what civilization might be. You know, the character is looking for. The central character, Gabriel, is looking to kill himself, but has decided he's not going to kill himself just now. He's going to have a pause before he kills himself, which is quite luxurious. Um, and he has, he has time to think about things and time to think about what he wants to do. And one of the things that he plans is this debauched feast, this kind of you know Roman banquet to end all banquets. And I know that you yourself are a great cook. Um, and I wanted I wanted to talk about that because it's kind of concentrated. Down, it's almost it is Roman, isn't it? At this point. Yeah. yeah. What did you want to concentrate on? <laughs> yeah. No, I wanted I wanted to talk about cooking because wh when I, when I realised that actually the way he writes about food, um, put, well, food slash sex. When if I'm thinking about the octopus fish tank orgy scene, which is a sentence I never thought I would say, um, but which does actually exist in the book, um, that, 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 you, that you must be a very good cook. Well, I wouldn't call myself a good cook, but I like to cook. I feel I have a palate, um, even though I, I smoke and everything else. And here's there's, there's some archaeology there, because the chef Smut in that book, Lights Up in Wonderland, is a real character. Um, and I lived with him... We shared a house many years ago, and he was the beginning of me being able to cook just because he had ways to do stuff, and he understood produce, and uh, he knew what you had to do. So I've grown to, to love it. It's not to mean that I'm a great cook at all, but that I appreciate it and appreciate uh, good food, definitely. But there's, there's something appetitive about that that happens to all the characters, like... The thing that, that drives the narrative for the characters is a desire sometimes for more or a repulsion at their desire for more when they acknowledge that they have it. Um, and that's food and that's drugs and that's sex. And I think that that must also exist in you. Oh, absolutely. But here's the thing that each of us, each of us is born with a quotient of energy. Listen, life is a push or a pull situation. We either suck 
uh, or we repel. And it's very clear now. I can tell you, if I, if I fall down dead tomorrow, um, honestly, from everyone I've seen in the whole world, there is a quotient of energy. There's a vortex in each of us. And in some of us, the more energetic, and the obviously there's a high percentage among people who come to write and, and, uh, and, and do things uh, creative. Um, excess is uh, key to life. So there's a situation where a little bit too much is only just about enough <laughs> for a lot of people. And we all know who we are. And there comes a point around as soon as we're conscious of that, which will happen after all the failed fucking relationships and everything else, the you know, a few court appearances where we go, okay, <laughs> this is probably just a constant electrical current. Um, so really we should just learn to manage that. And that's why I have the best hangover cures. <laughs> Tell me what they are quickly. I'm able to, well, the very, very, the okay, um, activated charcoal. If you go too far on the night. Acti activated charcoal? Yeah. I'm not an aquarium. I, how does that, what, 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 how do you eat it? Not at, well, you do eat it, yeah. It comes in a capsule. You find it in your health food store. If you go too far on the night, uh, activated charcoal, you have to, the thing is to develop a routine before retiring of simple sugars, uh, so... Half a banana is fucking perfect. Some fruit juice. Then you need a pint of water with something like a Barocca in it. You need B vitamins, especially. No, because the liver uses all that while it's processing the shit. B vitamins. Um, and Alka-Seltzer is great because there's aspirin as well. So you sleep well and wake up without a headache. And uh, uh, Depending what sort of session you're on, there are ways and means to wake back up and start again. <laughs> well, you have to, this is all part of growing up and being British, surely. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the half a banana. Where does it go? Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions, um, which could be very specific, um, or, th or they could be quite broad. Um, questions? Anyone? Here, Stephen. Do you take <laughs> do you do you take the activated charcoal <laughs> the night before? We have to be a little bit technical about this now. Activated charcoal. This this information. See now you're fucked for an hour of 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 biochemistry. Um, activated charcoal is a Japanese solution because they haven't quite got the gene we have, the enzymes we have to process alcohol, um, and so the idea activated charcoal will soaks things up in your gut. It's completely neutral and non-harmful. The idea, the idea that we would use it, and some people debunk it, some people say it won't pick up aldehydes and things which are dangerous uh, alcoholic poisons. Um, but I think the Japanese more or less proved, and I think I've proved that it does to some extent. <laughs> so the idea is that when you're on a, this is a, a question of staying in the party, you know, you go out on a night and you, ha you haven't eaten and you've had too many martinis and you get to where you're too pissed and you're already out of control, activated charcoal. And what it does, 
what it does is cap the knight at that. It's, it stops the damage right there and gives you a moment to regroup. <laughs> and then you can continue drinking, yeah? Happy with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel fairly sure that the activated charcoal is a small gift that you have me in your pocket. I'm, 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 no, 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 I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that that's what it is. I'm, 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 I'm quite sure. What is it? Oh, fancy schmancy case. Oh, we'll get to that later. Oh, what is that? Oh, this, oh well. This is an authentic uh, Mexican jumping bean. <laughs> I'm going to say thank you very much to DBCPR. Thank you. Um, I want to say, uh, say thank you to, to all of you. I have to say a huge thank you to all of you. It's the last salon of the year. It's been a fantastic year, and I'm very grateful to all of you for making it so special. And to our three guests, to S.J. Watson, to Liz Hoggard, and to DBCPR. I'll see you in February. Thank you.